Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Anra Gupta here with me in New York. Thank you for having me. So welcome to my podcast. Anra Gupta is a lawyer who turned entrepreneur and made it his mission to find out and figure out a way to reverse our bias. He is a social entrepreneur, a public speaker, mindfulness teacher, and also an educator. He founded Be More America, training professionals on how to eliminate conscious and unconscious biases. So Anurag, how come you do what you do? It's a great question, Vesna. So basically, I have been a nomad all my life. You know, I've just lived in so many different places. I was born in India, and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was 10. And while I was here, I was living in an incredibly multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, neighborhood, went to really diverse schools. And people and cultures just always fascinated me. But what was most fascinating was um, what people, and you know, specifically people that I was around, my friends and my family members, would say about other people. Mm-hmm. There were all these interesting things that I picked up as a kid that people couldn't say outside the home or outside the classroom, but they were still saying it. And for me, there was this, you know, really early on, there was this curiosity that was created. In India, it was really around religion. You know, my family is of Hindu descent, and they were, it's a very diverse country when it comes to religious beliefs and backgrounds but just like little snide comments about people that were non-Hindus, you know, Muslims or Sikhs or Christians or whomever. And not just in the Hindu community, it's in every community. So I was like, this is something interesting. What's going on here? Are we really different? And I went to college um, wanting to become a doctor or a scientist and took a lot of courses on genetics and molecular cell. And, you know, it was the time of kind of genomic science. It was right after the Human Genome Project had been released. And again and again, scientists were like, well, there's no fundamental difference between human beings. We're all part of the same species, homo sapiens. Um, (laughs) Yet this idea of bias was still around. And so my foray into the work was really wanting to transform that. And it was really because on the one hand, people have these little biases. On the other hand, there are these massive social inequalities and disparities that result from it. So... You know, at the time, I went to Burma to really work on ethnic reconciliation work. And it was really around wanting to create more peace and wanting to create more equity, but also just wanting to create um, more happiness in the world. And the more I learned about these issues, the more I also saw there's a business case for this work because there's billions of dollars that are just being wasted because we're unable to tap into the full potential of human beings because of these assumptions we're making about people based purely on what they look like or their names or their origins. And I was like, this is a tragedy. This is, you know, like my, what I want to, I want to live in a world where I can unleash my full potential, but also create systems that can unleash the full potential of every human being. And the more I read, the more I study, the more I interact with people from different cultures, I feel that, wow, like we have all the answers we need. You know, like 20th century, as tragic as it was when it comes to issues of bias, was also kind of part of this massive information 
and technological revolution. Everything we ever needed to know has been done in terms of the root causes of the challenges. And for me, it's now bringing those, that information into the imagination, the possibility of can we live in a world without bias, particularly gender bias, particularly racial or ethnic bias. And what would that world look like as we're evolving our human consciousness? And then business being the driver for that change. Not government, not the social sector, but really business. I mean, we all have biases and creating this distance between people and dividing us, but are there any like hacks that you would like to totally. just bring up, a few of them at least? Let's first start with what is bias, right? So people are always like, oh my God, bias. Second you say the word bias, there's fear, shame, blame. Oh my God, I don't want to be caught into it. Self-loathing oftentimes. Wow, I'm a bad person for thinking this way. Well, for us, it's like, no, bias is an algorithm of the mind that can be hacked, right? It's just the way the mind has been conditioned and wired. And that's a product of a bunch of different root causes. But in the last 30 years, we have so much incredible research, particularly around neuroscience. This idea of neuroplasticity has emerged, which is our ability as human beings to rewire the brain. So for us, it's like just as bias is learned, just as it's an algorithm, like in computers, we can reprogram our brains. And it's not that hard. And there's so much research around this, particularly from the contemplative sciences world, mindfulness studies across the world, that really help and enable people to be like, oh, this is what's happening. So like that's the first thing, like bias, algorithm, great. Now, another amazing thing that we know in the last 20, 30 years is we have ways to measure bias. And when I'm saying bias, I really mean unconscious bias. So biases that we're unaware of. These are learned habits of thoughts that distort the way we see, the way we perceive, reason, remember, and make decisions. So for example, there's a massive study that was done by um, Yale where they had 50 like law firm partners of all backgrounds, men, women, whites, and non-whites kind of grade two different memos from junior associates, you know, both named John Smith. No, actually one was John Smith and one was Darrell Smith. So one name seemingly African-American, one name seemingly white American, it could be anything. But the memos were identical. The memo of the African-American Darrell Smith, you know, was graded a whole point lower than the white American one. It had more red markings on it. It had more like punctuation errors, even though it was the same exact memo. So this goes back to the assumptions and the expectations that are deeply ingrained within the mindsets of these senior attorneys. And this wasn't just white attorneys or male attorneys, it was all attorneys, including attorneys of color. So what's going on there, right? And for us, it's to be able to hack that. Where, is the, where are those expectations coming from? And that's, of course, affecting this individual's performance, how his performance is being measured, and then his ability to advance into the firm his ability to lead the firm or stay at the firm, all the issues around the tension. And for us, it's like, whoa, I mean, this person could be a genius in terms of his, creative, his or her creativity, but because of these assumptions, there's a roadblock. So now, where I'm going with this is that we can measure unconscious bias. There's a test that was the most popular of these instruments. There's various instruments that social scientists have been using. It's called the implicit association test based out of Harvard. 
So they have over like 20 different IATs, that's what they call them, for race, for gender, for ethnicity, for color, for age, for size, where basically what it does is it flashes images as quickly as possible, and you have to put them in the right category. But the idea is they mix two categories together based on the assumption that every phenomenon that human beings interact with in the world has like a emotional valence attached to it. It's either positive, negative, or like neutral. It's a whole spectrum. So we're trying to see like what is the valence attached to physical features, to people's genders, to people's sexual orientation? What are those associations? And what we found when it comes to the race IIT, for example, that the vast majority of Americans, 75%, have an automatic preference for whites. This isn't just white Americans, it's actually all Americans. That doesn't mean discrimination, but it means preference, which has the effect of discrimination, right? So the good news, though, you know, people are like, oh my God, that's awful, we're, we're human, bad human beings. Like, no, 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 no. The good thing is, we can measure it. Never in human history could we actually measure unconscious bias. It's been around forever, right? And we're trying to use all these logical reasons to justify people's actions. And I can say this as an attorney, that's what lawyers do, right? But the idea is we don't need logical reasons because bias is emotional, right? It's an emotional thing, but now we can begin to measure it. So if you can measure it, we can manage it, as Peter Drucker said, right? And that's why since then there's been a whole host of research that's really enabled scientists and innovators to actually measurably reduce bias, to help people build more empathy, more compassion, kind of reduce the divisions that exist in the world, and to then be creative around how to solve problems that actually exist. But you, through Be More America, which might be Be More whatever country yeah. in the future, you're doing something by, of course, educating people so they become aware and understand how to manage this, as you say. Mm -hmm. But it would be wonderful if uh, it will be integrated into what we have today, as we call general education out Absolutely. there, uh, immediately. So we can, you know, kind of put it in as a healthy program into totally. the education. Where is that? Is that yeah. very far away? Well, it really depends on the direction you know we go in. We're living in a world where issues around bias and division are so pronounced. And you know, I came to this work because I wanted to just do work around economic development, around you know, really being an attorney for the defense last, right? I was working in the human rights field and economic development in Burma and Myanmar and various Southeast Asian countries. And I took this course in law school called Transitional Justice. And the course just opened my eyes to the extent of the law and its limitations. So in Transitional Justice, we studied society that had come out of massive warfare, just what they called extraordinary radical evil that no justice system could ever administer justice in such societies. Think apartheid South Africa, genocide in Rwanda, the breakup of the Yugoslavia. Oh, like, I mean, yes, we're going to try to prosecute one, two, four, five, several dozen people, but all of us were inflicted in some ways or other. And what was that about? Bias, root cause, right? So how do you shift that? Well, the science is pretty clear. Eight weeks of daily practice, eight weeks. Ask two months of daily practice, five to 10 minutes, a framework called PRISM, that's something we've created, but it's based on the science. We can actually begin to rewire the brain. 
Why eight weeks? It takes about eight weeks to adopt a new habit. Think about brushing your teeth. Right? So this is all about emotional hygiene, really being able to reduce the fever that's like in the body and affects decision making. I'm just curious, the example of that five, 10 minutes, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, exercise a day, what is it about? It's really about strengthening awareness. So PRISM is uh, these five strategies that have been shown to measurably reduce bias. And we've created this formulation, and each of the letters in PRISM stands for one of these strategies. And we start bottom up. So M stands for mindfulness. Mindfulness, present moment awareness. It's really helping people sharpen their awareness around what are the thoughts, what are the emotions, what are the body sensations that are coming up. So I remember after law school, I spent some time in Bosnia, for example, in Sarajevo, mm-hmm. I was in Mostar, and I would go there. And it was weird because I thought I was in Jim Crow South, which I've never lived in because I'm not, you know, I'm in my 30s now. But it was the communities of, you know, the Bosniaks, the Serbs and Croats were living in separate quarters, so separate. And you could feel the kids didn't care, the younger people my age, elders still had a lot of you know, social distancing. So it's really like, oh, can we be aware of what's happening when I'm interacting with someone from the other community, in the body, in the present, for me, forget others. These are the mindfulness tools that we can really sharpen awareness of ourselves. Second tool, stereotype replacement. So what are we becoming aware of? Stereotypes, stories in the mind, right? If I happen to be, you know, let's say, Irish Catholic and I'm with an Irish Protestant. What the second I meet this person and I haven't interacted with them in a very long time or growing up at all, what is the first story that comes up? Mm-hmm. Right? In the mind. And then replacing that story with a counter stereotypic example. Mm-hmm. So again, we're beginning to loosen the grip of how the brain has been conditioned. Individuation, third um, tool about instilling curiosity. Like me, you too have a mother. Like me, you too like jazz music. So it's relational, but also dissociating these group-based stereotypes and assumptions from the person to actually being with the person. So here I'm with Vesna, right? Who is a communications guru, who is running this incredible podcast versus my ideas of Vesna based on what she looks like. You know, pro-social behaviors, the fourth strategy, cultivating compassion, empathy, altruism for oneself, for others. And perspective taking is kind of the ultimate where we can actually begin to imagine what it's like to be in other people's shoes. So think about, you know, men, for example, you know, in America, in Europe, in other places, the Me Too movement has arisen. So many men have fallen, right? But what goes into the minds and bodies of men that they do certain things, particularly around harassment, to this other gender. And what would it be like if they could actually imagine what it's like to be a woman, a person? Basically, what's the difference between men and women? Not that many. It's just biologically, some people have wombs, others don't. That's the basic difference. But can we begin to cultivate that curiosity, that understanding, that imagination, that we know what it's like to be other people. And you know, so many scientists, you know, including the Dalai Lama, who's been kind of benighted all the scientists across the world, you know, our ultimate essence, our core as human beings is that compassion. And we have that potential, but we forget. 
And that's what we have to undo. And for me, it's not that hard. It's like we have the science, we have the tools, let's practice it. And this is my goal. This is my goal at Be More is to really bring all these tools in a simplified and an accessible way and deliver it to people in a way that they can access it. Because I know I won't be around forever. I know my team members won't be around forever. We want to build a technology for it because technology enables us to actually reach people at a scale that wasn't possible before. But the format of what you do, is it a course, a seminar, or is it even, as everything else in life nowadays, apps? <laughs> mm -hmm. Actually, all of that. Mm. So what we've done is we basically created a journey, and the journey is really targeted towards companies and institutions. Because we live in a time where, if you think about it, corporate entities, corporate people have more power than individuals. But what are corporations? What are businesses? They're conglomerations of people. Like, it's all people, right? We think of corporations as these like sterile, empty buildings, but they're not. They're people, right? Board of directors, senior managers, employee staff. So we basically want to take organizations through a whole journey. It's a three-step journey of really learning and creating a shared understanding around what bias is, how it manifests in decision-making, and then practicing prison strategies to hack it. And then really practicing these strategies on a daily basis really building influence amongst the senior leadership because they are the ones who really dictate the culture of a company and then really propelling performance. So our goal is to really upskill people, upskill leaders and employees with these skill sets. And then they get to actually use the tools to address the challenges that their companies, their industries face. So I'll give you an example. One of the industries we work a lot in is healthcare in the US. And so much research has been done, like it's researched out in terms of disparities of care when it comes to race, when it comes to gender. So I'll give you an example where doctors routinely prescribe lower doses of pain medication to darker skin patients, even when the pain threshold is the same. Because there may be an unconscious assumption that darker skin can withstand more pain, or it has less sensitive nerve endings, or they're exaggerating the amount of pain they have. This is, you know, again, empathy gap, what they called compassion gap and empathy gap. Now that's affecting the health care of 40% of Americans. That's, you know, tens of millions of people, but also costs the economy $300 billion a year because of repeat visits, misdiagnoses, and a whole host of other direct and indirect costs that come out of that. So for us, it's like, whoa, and it's starting at the clinical encounter, something so mundane But when repeated over and over and over again, it's like an automatic pilot, right? It aggregates into this crazy cost. So for us, it's like, okay, we're going to train the doctors, but not just them individually. We're going to train them in a way that's fun, shame-free, science-based, and like solutions-oriented. But not just them, but all their peers. So they have a shared vocabulary to talk to their peers about. And they can address these challenges from a place of courage, but also from a place of like, Yeah, this has been our training, you know. We have unconscious bias, so but we don't have to be ashamed of it. But let's do something about it. So there's accountability there. And then for us, like, it's really about just working with adult learners in order to really instill this as a practice. And, you know, the question he said around, like, we want to have this be part of education systems within school curricula, that would be incredible. But I've learned that Education systems are quite political because it's run by adults. <laughs> so for us, the strategy is that, 
hey, if we can really shift consciousness, shift perceptions, and then shift policies and norms by working with adults, and they're going to see the benefits, they're going to want to bring it to the kids. So it's a little bit reverse. Instead of like fighting with them to talk about and make the case for something they don't understand, it's like, no, let's have you experience this first and see its massive, tremendous effects. Are you today, I mean, given everything you work with, are you still today experiencing this kind of bias towards yourself in different situations? You know, it's so funny because I'm sure things happen, but my perspective has shifted so much. Because this is where, this, these are the it's tools, very right? Because mm-hmm. if someone has said something to me, it's, for me, it's like, oh, that's curious. That's interesting, because it's not about me. It's about them. And there have been times where I've been able to engage them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're coming from a place of curiosity, right? Or they're coming from a place of ignorance, not knowing. So it's like, oh, so I don't have to project a lot on other people, but I just ask questions and be curious. But this also requires a sense of knowing oneself. And that comes with practice. Again, we're rewiring the brain. Going back to you, Anurag, what would you say is your passion, you know, something that is so incredibly important to you that you are, if necessary, you will also suffer for it? Well, I think my passion really is breaking bias. Like, I think that this has become, it's been so many different indications from my life to say that this is what I was here to do, to really help people understand that we're all people and um, how can we live in a way that's in harmony with our families, our communities, and our societies, and celebrating the diversity of humanity as it is. You know, I think for me, it's really particularly around, more and more so around gender bias. I used to work at the, at CEDAW, which is the women's body at the UN, and I would work with all these women's groups from across the world, doing some incredible work. And for me, it kept, the question kept on arising is, these individuals have to prove their humanity to get basic rights, to get basic services over and over again, every four years. And these are women's groups from Sweden to Switzerland, to Indonesia, to Bolivia, to Zimbabwe. So these aren't just like, oh, it's just a South, you know, the global South problem. It's a global problem. So like, what would a world look like where we could just be humans without having to worry about a lot of, a lot of these things? What could we do? Like we have so many impending challenges as a human race, climate change, you know, war, desertification, like there's so many issues, you know, extinction of so many species, food shortages. But if we could overcome this, I think we would have the ways to actually collaborate to address these problems, these challenges. And I know that we have the science, we have the knowledge, it's just a matter of coming together. And that's basically breaking bias. And there is another kind of you know, diversity that I notice uh, in companies as well, that they talk about diversity and it's typically, you know, these aspects that you were talking about. But there is also the diversity of, how can I say, perspectives. Uh, I mean, different kinds of people with different talents will bring different perspectives. And mm-hmm. it's obvious for everyone to say, okay, sure, you know, the more diversity of perspectives, the better, just throw everything in and then we'll figure out what's best. But there is a less tolerance for certain perspectives and, and that's kind of, you know, somebody might judge it as, oh my God, that's kind of just fluffy. What is that about? 
let's be concrete and you know so there is a diversity in the daily small things as well uh, like that mm, one yeah totally that i've seen up close very often and i think that's something that we're seeing more and more that how do we bring people from different walks of life to work together to share bread together to mm. create together right mm. and that's important because we are the world is a very diverse place we have no idea mm-hmm. you know what would you say are the transformational points in your life you know that have influenced you the most so far the most transformational moments in my life I mean, it could be people or or situations small or big there've been quite a few the three that come to me the top three are well one when i was working in myanmar in burma and i was there i think i read all the books and i was like oh my god it's an authoritarian country like people are being oppressed and people are so like downtrodden and they don't have anything out there and basically i created a i actually founded a nonprofit called opening possibilities asia and we worked in mandalay and i was a i was studying education methodology and teaching and i was an educator at the time so we built a whole teacher training program for about 60 teachers at a massive school called pongdao in mandalay so basically they can make their classrooms more interactive and our goal was to help teachers have the skills to instill critical thinking, curiosity, inquisitiveness amongst their students, particularly kids that were kind of used to rote memorization. So we felt like their brains were just being wasted. So we went there we're like, okay, walking in as Americans, four of us, we worked with the teachers. They're like, they're incredible human beings. They don't need us to tell them what to do. So we dropped everything we brought and created a new program in collaboration with them. And I just remember that it was such a humbling experience because we had worked almost 9 months in preparation for this program. We got there like this is not what the community needs. This is not onward leading. Okay. Good things. We're going to move on and we did it. The program was successful 4 years in, 4 years out. Every year we had a teacher training program. It became a part of um the school but what did they so to say bring to the table with you that made all the difference laughter uh-huh. joy <laughs> and then participation with students yeah wow so it wasn't the dynamic of you know mm. distancing and oh that's very like strict you know madam coming in and teaching us what to do it's like oh no we're going to mm. play and learn together yeah and the two other ones was i was in law school And that's when I began to shift my focus from working internationally for a while to working in the US. I was working in New Orleans for a summer and I was sitting in a court and just watching basically sentencing of people who happened to be all kids. <laughs> I mean, I would call them kids because they were teenagers about mm. 13 to 15, but they were being sentenced to prison for you know 3 4 5 years at a time for like not even petty offenses petty things i don't even call them offenses breaking cell phones trespass to property mm. and i was just morally disgusted with myself as a law student mm. studying law in order to uphold the light you know basically the law so people can experience life liberty and pursuit of happiness and i know that so many people children couldn't and those kids happened to be all black and everybody that was in the courtroom was non-black in terms of having some power of influence 
actually there were a few African-Americans too. And I was like, what is going on? Because I worked with these individuals who ran the court. They were all really good human beings. Members of their church, members of community boards, did community service, served as mentors. But why so much cruelty? What was that about? And that was like the wake up moment. Oh my God, this is unconscious bias. Or they were just thinking, I'm just doing my job, right? Yeah. Following yeah. the law. <laughs> right. And I'm like, this needs to shift. But has the law in some way mirrored this problem? I think so. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the third thing. I went on a 10-day meditation retreat about two years after that incident, maybe like eight years ago. And basically sitting in silence every day, 14 hours a day, but also like just practicing mindfulness on a very day-to-day -day basis, noticing the nervous system, noticing what's going on. And I realized that the black letter law is pretty good. Like the laws and policies we have, not just like in our governments, but also in our companies are pretty good. No laws or no policy would say it's okay to harass women or it's okay to like practice discrimination. Actually, there's a lot of controls in place, but the challenges are that we've changed the laws, we've yet to change the narrative, the perceptions, the hearts and minds of the people that enforce the law. So they're still operating in the old paradigm. So emotions have yet to catch up with where our brains are. And that's where I work. So I was like, oh God, this is it. Like we have to like be more kind, right? Be more compassionate and not shame people into being like, don't do this, don't do that. But be like, oh, why are you doing this? This is actually not serving you. It actually doesn't feel good, but it's a habit. So let's help you break this habit. And you don't have to do this alone. You can do it with others. If you see something uh, that is not, you know, fair or very biased, somewhere in the everyday reality, do you do something? Do you say something to people because of who you are and what you do? Or are you more, you know, observe? It depends on the context of yeah. it, right? Depends sure, I mean, on... if it's something grave, of course. Right. But I mean, if it's just something kind of subtle, but it's there. I think what I do is, it's all about doing it skillfully. Because my whole hope is to work on this challenge in a way that's shame-free. So what I've done in the past is actually, I've seen something happen. Afterwards, take the person aside, like, hey, let's go for coffee or let's go for tea or, you know, do you have a minute to talk? And just be like, oh, did you notice that? What was that about? And I would say 99% of the time, they already had remorse around what they had done but they didn't know what to do about it. And they were like, yeah, I didn't know what to do. You know, it was just a habit. Like, I, you know, I don't know, it just slipped out of my mouth and you know, I didn't really mean to, but like, what do I do? And like, so again, they're coming from a place of fear because they don't want, they can't acknowledge it because what if they get, you know, whatever the challenge may be. And particularly if they're in a corporate setting, there's always litigation is like the big thing that they're always fearful of. It's like, no, like, it's just about acknowledging what happened and knowing that you're human. And if you feel that, have a conversation. Clear the air. That's what it's about. We're human beings. We're fallible and we make mistakes. <laughs> But for businesses or organizations, what would you say is a, like a long-term solution or a long-term formula that you believe in? So that's what we're working on right now. I think it's really about creating a cohesive culture where there's a shared understanding around these shared values. So for us, it's really by doing those through in-person trainings and workshops and keynotes, and then supporting them over time using technology. So we're working on building 
We're building basically our own like mobile learning system where employees can actually log in every day and practice PRISM exercises. So they are actually shifting their perceptions and then have the tools to be able to talk about these things openly. So when they see something come up, whether it's in a client meeting or whether it's an internal meeting of some sort, they're like, oh, what's that about? But not from a place of shame, like, oh, let's tackle it. Let's like undo this because the effect of it is hurting our bottom line. If that's what people care about, sure it is. It's totally hurting their bottom line because people aren't being productive. It's you know causing burnout within the workplace. It prevents, bias prevents employee engagement. Of course, it hurts the brand. And then moreover, you're not able to get the right clients, particularly in this globalized world we're living. And if we dream a little bit and you say, uh, assume that you have all doors open and uh, all kinds of resources available to you, what would you then innovate or change? If I had a magic wand, I would just want people to be able to rewire their brains instantly so they can see that, oh my gosh, like I've been living in so much fear. Oh my gosh, I've been living in so much shame or distress. And just be comfortable. It's like, oh gosh, it's not that serious. It is serious because we make it to be serious. But it's like we want to be good to one another. We want to be good to the people we work with, the people we report to, but also the people that report to me. So it's really about breaking bias. I mean, that's what I think about. Like, what would a world without bias look like? You know, what would a world without, you know, this constant like fight freeze response look like? Mm-hmm. What do you think? What would it look like? I mean, I know it would feel free. It would feel very free. It would feel like a place where artists go. It would feel like an empty canvas and where we can build a lot of things and really kind of take our humanity forward. More joy, more parties, <laughs> more <laughs> celebration. Yeah, that joy that you experienced with yeah. the teachers, right? <laughs> but there's a lot of people that are leaders. I mean, it also depends on how we define that. But, you know, anybody, anybody who has some kind of following, right? And some kind of power of influence and power of decision. Is there any particular advice you would like to give to what we would call leaders? And do you maybe have an example of a leader in this today's US uh, that you, I don't want to say admire, but that you respect more than many others? Mm-hmm, for sure. For the good reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think the one, we have three pieces of advice. Mm-hmm. First, I think what I've learned over and over again is the importance of vulnerability and openness. But because bias is a challenging topic, it's something that all of us confront. If you're in Germany, it's between the Turkish minorities, the Balkan minorities, and the German majority. If you're in France, it's the Arab minorities and the French people. And you know, if you're in the UK, it's similar to the US. There's you know the African populations, the South Asian populations, and then there's the gender stuff. So I think for leaders, it's like, wow, like if I really want to create a company and that upholds this mission, whether it's creating certain products or creating certain services, it's for everybody. Men, women, people of all colors, different ethnicities, religious backgrounds. What is preventing me from building a team that represents that? Really question, and being honest with oneself. You know, just being like, okay, let me write out all my fears. What's gonna happen? So that's one. Second, mentorship. I'm hearing this everywhere. You know, we've trained over 10,000 people, you know, I have so many friends that work at you know, massive law firms that work in Fortune 500 companies. Especially, I hear this over and over again. 
women and people of color don't have mentors, right? So this is where the automatic preference is. So it's not that they're being biased, they're being discriminated against. It's like people in senior positions are mentoring people that look like them or have, the, you know, and they're not going after the real talent. So if there are leaders, I'm like mentor people who are from a different ethnic background, mentor people from a different religious background, mentor people who are women, particularly women, mentor women, and really build a relationship of a mentor-student. Because intergroup contact is how we break bias. So that's like the second thing I would say. And third is, I think, I think really bringing this to the workplace. It's crucial. It's crucial. We're living in a very divisive time, you know, in Europe with the massive refugee crisis and then internal crises that have existed for a millennia, right? It's crucial that we're at a time where we talk about these issues openly and not just pretend that they don't exist because the law exists and we follow the law and because we have these cultural norms, but then really allow people to be emotional around it. But when we discuss it, discuss it with some ground rules, particularly shame-free. So shame, blame, guilt is not helpful. So doing that skillfully. Do you have a mentor? Or, oh, yes. or several? Oh, several. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't be where I am without mentors. <laughs> okay. For sure. And Th again, that have found you, you found them, or how? how? Both. I mean, the, one, the first person that came to mind was uh, Susan Davis. So she's been my mentor for a decade now. So she's herself a social entrepreneur. She was the founder and CEO of um, BRAC USA, which basically is the largest poverty alleviation company in the world does microfinancing, 400,000 employees. And, you know, she found me, you know, a person from a different background, different gender, but has been mentoring me this for a decade now. Not because she wanted anything, but there was that curiosity. She saw a spark in me in some way. And through her, I mean, I mean, I have many other examples like that, but it's, yeah, it's a gift. It's such a gift. And um, if um, you were to give an advice to yourself, let's say 10 years ago, what would that be? I think not take myself so seriously and have more fun. You know, like, I think sometimes, you know, running a socially driven company, um, having a purpose makes us fall into the same trap of being like, oh my God, I'm a martyr. Oh my God, like I need to do this because everything relies on me. But it's like, well, we're interdependent. So I do my part, everybody does their part. And you kind of surrender a little bit and let go. Um, so I think when I was younger, I was, you know, as a naive young person, I was uh, hung up on a lot of these things. But I also learned from that anger and, you know, just disappointment and all of those things have been good teachers. Mm -hmm. And what uh, over the last 10 years have you learned in terms of how to uh, lead and inspire people, your team, I mean, working with you? Open communication and authenticity. Mm. And what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? You know, one common denominator thing for all kinds of companies and organizations that everybody needs to focus on. I would just say gender bias, gender equity. It's crucial. 50% of every board, 50% of the workforce, 50% of senior executives, no less. And maybe more. May the best person win. <laughs> <laughs> but really taking yeah. those. Exactly. Um, ingrained biases out of the system. Yeah. And when you say best uh, 
person win, it's really, as of course you mean, that um, in the sense, what is best for the whole. Precisely. We, 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 I love people who are able to think, you know, and act on the 360 degree perspective as much as possible. And then having a team around them that is supporting that idea, kind of reminding everybody about it as well. Precisely. So we all go in the same direction because we are all drops in the same ocean, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, you know, as a, one of my kind of final questions that people say, my God, it's such a difficult question. How can you ask such a thing? But uh, here it is. What do you think that the world needs most at this time? More love and understanding. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I stopped watching the news because it's just all about division and he said and she said and they said and warfare. It's like, no, we need to, there's also a million other examples of how people are building communities, how people are being resilient, how people are innovating, how companies are innovating around these challenges. We need to love ourselves too. <laughs> yeah, very important point, really. Yeah. Start there. Yeah, start there because whenever I feel like there is a lack of love in a relationship, in a context, and by love I mean more compassion and caring, genuine concern, mm. I feel like the person, also, it's really coming from a sense of lack. So there's some concern lacking for self as well that enables one to do that to others. Mm. So true. And many people I've met, uh, especially in Asia and in India and so on, or maybe I have had a positive flow, I don't know, but they're very, very much more aware of these things mm. uh, and aware of themselves and you know who they are and what they are and, and kind of loving themselves first without that being an egoistic action, rather yeah. a, a, you know assumption for, for the rest, right? And I see a little bit less of that in our westernized world. Western. What do you think, why is that? I think we in the West have you know, this is one of the epidemics of modern day. It's loneliness. We've lost connection to community, to belonging, to land. You know, so mm. that's kind of one of the challenges. We're so, we're kind of stuck in our heads, mental constructs and concepts. So we want to come back to our bodies and really build relationships. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add that, you know, you feel we, that is important to you that we left out? Well, I think the only thing I would say is it's a quote that keeps on coming up during this conversation. So one of the people that I think about, kind of my spiritual mentors, Albert mm. Einstein, right? Mm. Incredible person, genius of all things, but also a really socially progressive advocate himself of women's rights, of, of racial equity, of ethnic equity, and peace in general. He said something about a hundred years ago it's depressing to live in a time where it's easier to break an atom than bias. <laughs> it was interesting, and I was like, yeah, but now we can break bias, right? So part of me is like reassured. Um, so I feel like what I would like to leave people off with is that it's possible. And can we begin to dream that together? What does that possibility look like? Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anurag. Um, you are such a wonderful person. Thanks for sharing everything, really. And uh, to find out more about Anurag and his work, you can head to bemoreamerica.org. And you can also follow him on social media at uh, bemoreamerica or at anuragnyc. 
So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And I also truly appreciate if you share this episode with the people you know would benefit from hearing it. So thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao from New York. Ciao.